Well, hi there, and welcome to Unshaken. I'm Julie Van Warmer, your host for today's episode, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Hey, I want to take a minute before we head into today's episode and invite you to head over to our socials, Facebook and Instagram, follow or like us at Women of the Word CTW. This is the umbrella account that covers and highlights this podcast, our blog called Planted, our mom-to-mom ministry aimed at encouraging all the moms, and our Regarding Him conference that happens every year in March. There is so much good content in all of this, you are not going to want to miss it. So go follow it today. That will be in our show notes each and every week. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast directory like Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. It helps us out and it also helps you out because you get notification of new episodes that drop each and every Thursday. You can also reach out to me at unshakenpsalm622 at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you if you have any suggestions or any ideas or thoughts about episodes or maybe you just want to tell me a way that this episode has been encouraging. Finally, as you know, Unshaken is a podcast for women and our goal is to encourage, challenge, and point women to Jesus Christ. And Well, with Jesus, we can be unshaken no matter our circumstances. Well, today's episode is 120, and the topic is called Resolving to Restore. Have you ever had a broken relationship? Have you ever had someone who hurt you so bad you never thought you could forgive them, let alone have a relationship with them again? These are the things that plague many people and can cause great bitterness, depression, anxiety and sadness. Today we're going to listen to Jen Turner as she walks us through how you and I can restore relationships and how actually God calls us to do this. Let's jump right in. I'm glad you're here. We might have some people coming in in a few minutes. That's fine. I do not mind at all if you want to use the restroom while there's not a line. You're welcome to just dart out the door anytime. Um, Feel free to stand up, move around. It doesn't bother me at all. My name's Jen Turner. I'm glad to have you with us today. I look out. It's encouraging to see some familiar faces. I've gotten to know some of you either here from Christ the Word or other women's events. My mom is here, so I obviously know her. Uh, (laughs) But then there's also some faces that I don't recognize. And so it's fun to see us come together today from a variety of different churches and backgrounds and different experiences and relationships. I imagine, though, we do likely at least have one thing in common, and I imagine that you probably didn't sign up for this particular breakout session on restoring broken relationships if you simply desire to just gain some new intellectual knowledge. I also assume that you probably aren't here because every single one of the relationships in your life are currently perfectly peaceful and without any trouble. We likely wouldn't sign up for a talk like this if That was the case. It's actually my desire, though, that you have chosen to be with me today because you are in the midst of a relationship, whether it's a friendship, the context of our time throughout the conference today, or any other type of relationship that is struggling. And it could be that you're in a difficult relationship with someone very close to you or in a relationship that's struggling that has very deep-rooted conflict or tension. And if this does describe you today, I want to let you know that I do understand what it is like to have a friendship just blown apart by conflict. Our specific details will, of course, be different, but I do sympathize you with how hard this can be. Admitting conflict exists in a relationship is never easy. Talking about it is hard. 
And actually then dealing with it is harder still. But I want you to be encouraged today, above all else, that there is hope for our broken relationships. God does provide for us in the Bible much instruction and hope for how to see reconciliation actually be brought about. And so it will be to God's word that we look today. And as we look at God's word, we're going to not look at how we can make everyone else change. Rather, we are going to examine the more difficult concept of how we might need to change. We will examine our own hearts to see perhaps where we have been wrong. And we'll talk through some ways that we might need to start doing something God requires or stop doing something that God forbids to be able to see reconciliation occur in our relationships. This will take for each of us humility and courage. Yet it is my prayer that God will use our time together to perhaps be a means that he would use to restore some of our struggling friendships and other relationships. So let us go to God in prayer as we begin. Father, we do thank you for this time together this afternoon. We ask that you would give us honesty to admit where our relationships are struggling and the humility to change where we need to change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by telling you a story. I'm in my mid-20s, so this was, I'm 37, so, I don't know, 15, 10 years ago. I met and quickly became friends with a woman from church. I will call her Vanessa. And we very quickly became close friends. After several years of enjoying close friendship, she and I had an argument. And the argument stemmed over me no longer being able to keep my word to attend a special gathering for a member of her immediate family. I was working in Canada at the time, and I had even purchased a plane ticket to fly back the weekend of the gathering. And yet I was no longer able to attend because I chose instead to go to a funeral of a relative I was dating, a funeral of a relative of the man I was dating at the time. That man is now my husband. And the special gathering and the funeral were the exact same day, at the exact same time, in cities that were 500 miles apart. And I changed my ticket before I told Vanessa that I was no longer coming to her event. And when I did tell her, I did not take into account the most sensitive way to tell her. And needless to say, she was not happy with my choice. Significant conflict and further arguments resulted. And over the course of the following almost 12 months, our friendship got to the point where it did completely sever a few days before my wedding. She and her family did not attend the wedding, as would be expected in such a circumstance, and years passed before we would speak again at all. I was heartbroken and had no idea what to do to restore the relationship. Perhaps you find yourself today in a similar place, with a close friendship now estranged. Or even if your troubled relationship has managed to hang on in ways that mine with Vanessa did not, perhaps you and your friend have a topic of conversation you simply cannot discuss without arguing or a way in which one of you has not been sensitive or kept your word to the other, or some other specific circumstance that is different than mine, but you're still able to relate to my story because you too find yourself in the midst of a broken relationship. In each of these specific scenarios and in countless others like them, we have a choice. We can respond and act in a way that puts our interests first, that protects us from being hurt, that makes things easy on us. And let's be honest, this is a very appealing choice. And it certainly is the advice that our American culture would give us. 
Or we can respond in a way that seeks first and foremost to honor and obey God and his word. To do what is right instead of what is easy. To do what is biblical instead of what is cultural. And this is the example that God sets for us. God models for us complete selflessness and absolute unconditional love and forgiveness. He pursues and loves us even when we hate and reject him. And you can see on your handout a passage from the Bible that I'm going to read that illustrates this. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Does anyone need a handout? Okay. Those verses say, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We see in these verses that in our natural state, every human is at odds with God. We are born in sin, and not just a temporary difficulty with God, but we actually hate him. We follow the devil, who's described here as the prince of the power of the air. We are called children of wrath, every one of us. It's not exactly a description of someone you would want to be your best friend. But God, this passage teaches us, did not wait to love his enemies until they changed. He did not wait until they saw things his way and sought peace with him. Rather, because of his great mercy, because of his great love in the midst of disobedience, he provided through Jesus a way for us to be saved from our sins. He did not require we stay in our dead state. For those of us here this afternoon, who have been saved by faith alone in Jesus, this merciful and unbelievable kindness of God has been so freely given to us. We were God's enemies, not his friends, when he saved us. He pursued us with unconditional love and forgiveness when our relationship with him was at its worst. And this example that he so freely gives to us is to be our model in how we interact with others. So when our human relationships become strained, when we sin against others and are sinned against, when even a simple misunderstanding can cause difficulty, we are called by God to seek reconciliation because this is what he has done. As our breakout session title reminds us, we must be resolved to restore our relationships so that we follow God's perfect example. But how do we actually do this? In the reality of real life, in real relationships, and real hurts, how do we pursue unity? We will look at, primarily to our time today will be spent in Hebrews 12, a passage from there, in order so we can look at how we can apply God's example to our broken relationships. These verses are on your handout as well. I will read them for you. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Do not refuse him who is speaking. The passage begins in its first verse, verse 11, by encouraging us that for the Christian, God has a purpose in our trials. Our sorrow in the experience of a broken relationship is not without hope. While the difficulty can at times be heartbreaking, we have the promise that if we follow God through the trial, through the discipline of the broken relationship, God will bring about peace and joy as we seek to do what he says is right. Verse 12 then continues with the word therefore, letting us know that what's coming in these following verses is to be read in light of what was just before. Verses 12 and following then give us practical advice on how to have peace and how to do what is right when we experience the trial of a broken relationship. We're going to break this down in our time together today into two categories, what we are to do, and there's four points that the passage shows us we are to do, and then what we are not to do, and there's one action that we are not to take in trusting God to see our relationships restored. So we will jump right in and start by talking about what we are to do. There's an outline written on your handout, and I'll follow the outline. So the first thing we are to do, you can see in verse 12, and that is to strengthen. The verse reads, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. So in general, what types of things need to be strengthened? The adjectives used here are things that are weak or feeble. Perhaps you know a person who, because of age or sickness, could be described as feeble. Strengthening this person would not take five minutes. There's no magic fix for his or her infirmities. And the same is true for our faltering relationships. Almost always restoring them will take time, hard work, and perseverance. If any of you have undergone physical therapy like I have, anyone? Physical therapy? Yeah. You know that in order to strengthen a part of our body that's weak, the pain can actually increase before things get better. If we quit physical therapy after one or two sessions because it's just too hard, what's weakened in our body will not be properly strengthened and restored. And the same pertains to our human relationships. To see lasting restoration, we must be committed for the long haul. Broken relationships, much like hands that are weak and knees that are feeble, do not just spring up overnight. Often, they take place because of a long period of time of neglect, illness, or abuse. It could take just as long to restore them. And this requires much perseverance on our part. We must be committed to our friends the way that God is committed to us. To love when others aren't lovable. To pursue even if initially rejected. And to look beyond the immediate discomfort to the joy and peace that can come as we do what is right and follow God. Where have you neglected a broken relationship? Where have you not strengthened but actually helped a relationship to further deteriorate? How could God be asking you to persevere or commit to the long haul in a faltering friendship? So we've talked about our first principle to strengthen. The second one, the action we are to take to imitate God in our faltering relationships, is to make straight. And you'll see this in verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Throughout the Bible, the language make straight is used to putting aside sin 
and seeking what is right. Straight things are therefore those that are in agreement with God and his word. And crooked things are those things that are sinful and opposed to God and his word. So if we apply the same language to our broken relationships, if we are to make straight paths for our faltering friendships, how do we do this? How do we identify what is crooked in order to deal with it in a way that honors God? There's many, many specific ways we could do this. I'll offer two for us to consider today. The first one is to control our emotions. We as women are especially prone to having emotions that are all over the place. We have too little sleep. We have too many hormones. We have too few hormones. We have the wrong combination of hormones. We have too much to do. And all of a sudden, our emotions are north, south, east, west, and everywhere in between. And that takes about five seconds. We must be aware, though, that just because we feel a certain way doesn't mean what we feel is based on truth. Very often, our emotions are deceiving. They do not give us an accurate biblical perspective on any situation, let alone one that is difficult. We so often live like our feelings are true, though, don't we? While we might pride ourselves on not outwardly throwing a fit the way a young girl might do when her emotions are raging, we can be just as out of control in our thoughts and emotions as if we were literally screaming and stomping our feet. We must not let our emotions keep us from obeying God. There are many methods we can use to grow in not acting according to how we feel. If you'd like suggestions on implementing these in your own life, I would be glad to talk to you later today. Some examples of these methods include reading the Bible systematically, all of it, so as to not overlook any of its truths. Then as we study the Bible, we are able to more and more over time consistently identify when our emotions are out of line with it. We also can work to memorize scripture so that we replace the up and down, all over the place whims of how we feel with what is true and honoring to God. The discipline of Bible memory work is something God has made me passionate about and helped me to persevere in over about the last 10 years. And countless times he has used verses, chapters, books I've memorized to both encourage me and to give me the courage to follow him when I've been in a difficult spot. If this practice is not a part of your Christian life, I would highly encourage you beginning. A second way we can strive to make straight the paths of our relationships is by confessing sin. As we work to not live according to how we feel, we are able to more accurately discern when we have sinned against God and his word. As we sin and correctly identify how we have been disobedient to God, we must confess our sin. What exactly is confession of sin? The Bible has much to say about it. It is not a specific set of words. It is not a ritual. It is not mediated by another human on our behalf to God. It is not mumbling a vague, I'm sorry, and then just going on with life. Rather, confession involves agreeing with God's word in a particular area, and then specifically identifying where I have failed to meet it. It involves asking for forgiveness for specific wrongs committed. And true confession and the sorrow that accompanies it should always be accompanied by a change in our actions. The Bible calls this change repentance, which is a literal turning away from sin. As we saw in the Ephesians passage that I started our time with, we are all disobedient to God and children of his wrath. 
Because of this, our sin must first and foremost be confessed to God, as each sin is an offense against him. No human who has or ever will live is free from this burden of sin and the need to confess it, asking for the forgiveness that can only come in Jesus. And in order to make straight paths in our broken relationships, we must also confess our sin to the people we have offended. Sadly, even in the Christian church, it is popularly taught that confession of sin is only between me and God, an exclusively private matter. Yet this is not in line with what the Bible teaches. We must not be deceived by our pride that we'll do anything to hide our sin. Rather, let us ask God to give us humility so that we may specifically identify and confess our sin and likewise trust God to work as we confess it, even if the other person does not change. It can be very tempting to only focus on what the other person has done wrong. Yet we must deal with our sin even if she does not and trust God as we work to make straight paths in our relationships, that he will take what is lame and not put it further out of joint, as the verse talks about, but rather heal it. I'm going to share with you a scenario that can help um, help visualize for us, I hope, this language the Bible is using about limb lames not being put further out of joint, but rather healed. About three years ago, my third born was an infant at the time, and he was a way earlier than I wanted to be up, and he was hungry. <laughs> and so I was on the second floor. He was on the main floor of the house we were in at the time, and I started, you know, in my half-asleep state, walking down the steps, and I missed the last step. Mm-hmm. And the house had, it was older, and it had a um, wrought iron railing. Maybe you've seen these before. Like, that slopes down, and then it, like, curls around, and a mm-hmm. little curly-cue thing. And so I missed, as I missed the step, I grab onto the railing with my dominant hand. And as I fall, my finger got caught in the curly cue and snapped. Well, I probably don't need to tell you that that hurt. And my finger immediately started throbbing and turning purple. And yet my son is still screaming. And so instead of taking care of my finger, I sat down and nursed my son. Yet the pain continued. And I tried my best to just ignore it. My other, well, all three of my children and I, we had plans to actually be with my parents that day. And I thought, you know, it's a finger. You know, it'll be fine. Like, it's just one part of my finger. Sure, it hurts now. But I'm sure, you know, I'll ice it and it'll feel better. Well, it didn't feel better. (laughs) And it got to the point where I couldn't bend it. And I still was proud and didn't go to the doctor because I thought it would not be helpful and a waste of time. I mean, I thought, well, all my other fingers still work fine, so okay, this one bothers me for a week or two. I'll probably be okay. And I quickly adapted to performing tasks without the use of that finger, and over time the pain did go away. But I still knew that something wasn't right. Like, I still couldn't bend it normally or perform tasks, you know, like opening a camp pop or something like that. And full use and function never came back. At some, points in, at some point in the months that followed, I mentioned this to a friend who's a doctor and said in the conversation that I couldn't understand why such a simple thing, like why my finger wasn't fine, why didn't it just work fine now because it wasn't hurting anymore. His response to me was, I was correct. It probably was a very minor injury. But had I seen a doctor immediately, the joint that was dislocated and broken, could have been put back into place. 
And this likely would not in the moment have felt very nice, but that if I had taken that step to have the bone relocated, the full healing process could have resulted. My finger would have no longer been dislocated, and the pain and the other symptoms associated with the problem would have gone away. And so it is also with our relationships. We are told to make straight paths so that lame limbs are not put out of joint, but rather healed. God is warning us in these verses that if we refuse to make straight our relationships through means such as controlling our emotions and confessing our sin and dealing with its consequences, our friendships will not be healed, but rather be put further out of joint, like my finger. How have you acted in your relationships like I did with my broken finger? Where are you ignoring trouble in a relationship? How are you letting your emotions control you? In what ways are you unwilling to confess and deal with your own sin? We'll move on to the point three there on your handout, for those of you that are following along. Um, We've talked about strengthening and making straight. The third action the passage talks to us about is to pursue. And we see this in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You see here, the first thing we are to be diligent to pursue is peace. And not just with some people, but with all people, every person, each person with whom we are at odds. Using my finger again as an example, having one broken finger in the moment didn't seem like that big deal to me. I had nine others that worked just fine. Certainly a problem with just one wouldn't have that big of an impact on my overall life. Yet I was wrong, and my refusal to deal with my injured finger has led to permanent difficulty. And this happens, too, in our relationships. In our sin and in our selfishness, we can easily convince ourselves that, in general, our relationships are fine, even if there are one or two that are struggling. But whether we want to admit it or not, and whether we want to deal with it or not, conflict does not just go away, nor does it usually stay isolated. Ignoring a problem does not make it disappear, just like ignoring my finger did not magically make it well. And so we hear God's call to us again, pursue peace with all men. We must not be content to be at odds with anyone. The second thing we are to pursue is sanctification, and this is a big word that the Bible uses that simply means to be set apart or to be made holy. It is used not simply of those who claim to follow Jesus, and might self-identify on a census as a Christian, but for those who actually live in such a way that over time their lives more and more reflect a sincere obedience to God's word from the heart. In our context today, a woman who is pursuing sanctification in her broken relationships is one who sincerely desires to model the example God sets for her, as described in the Ephesians passage we read. She will have a heart of mercy instead of one of vindictiveness. She will strive to make things right, even if it means she needs to change. She will freely confess her own sin as it pertains to the relationship, and she will not blame others. The woman who is willing to pursue sanctification will not gossip about the difficulty. She will be kind to her friend, even if her friend is not kind back. She will not keep a record of wrongs, as to how many times and in what minute ways her friend has wronged her. Rather, she will love unconditionally as God has loved her. 
And why should we pursue this sanctification? If we are unwilling to pursue it, the passage does contain a strong warning to us. Those who do not pursue sanctification will not see the Lord. If we are unwilling to follow God's example by pursuing peace and sanctification in each of our relationships, it may be an indicator that we do not actually know God. And that regardless of what we call ourselves, that we may not actually be a Christian. If we outright refuse to obey God in this teaching, this should be a wake-up call to our souls. Let this not be passed over by us simply because it's a strong warning, but let it be used instead by God to, if needed, awaken us to follow him from the heart. Are there ways you are refusing to pursue peace? Have you convinced yourself that those one or two struggling relationships aren't that big of a deal? Are you known as a woman who regularly speaks badly of people? In what ways are you hesitant to obey God in order to be sanctified and see a hurting relationship restored? The fourth and final action the passage gives for us is to see to it, and we see this in verse 15. It reads, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So first, we're not to come short of the grace of God. When we refuse or even just hesitate because of fear or insecurity to pursue unity in our friendships, we come short of the blessings that God could have for us and the blessings of obeying his commands. And if God, in this particular context, is willing to reconcile our relationships, we could miss out on weeks, months, even years of restored fellowship with the other person. We are also to see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness stems from a proud heart that is unwilling to forgive. It is so easy to hold on to offenses that are committed against us. And in actuality, it's often the case that what we perceive was an offense, was actually just a misunderstanding. We see at the end of Ephesians 4 some verses that explain for us a bit more about bitterness. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Bitterness does not stay in isolation, but lends itself to sin and other areas as well. We must fight this temptation. And why? Well, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have been forgiven so much. Remember those Ephesians 2 verses, when we were God's enemies, God in his mercy made us alive in Christ. We desire and even expect to experience the immeasurable benefits of God's forgiveness, Yet then we refuse to show genuine kindness and graciousness towards others. Let us see to it that this root of bitterness does not spring up, and if it does, we deal with it quickly. Because if it does appear, it will cause trouble. It's not something that we can just keep in our own hearts and convince ourselves that it won't affect anything or anyone else. It will harm many others. You may be in a situation where you have in the past attempted to reconcile with someone. And for whatever reason, that person to this date is not interested in the relationship being restored. 
In these relationships especially, we must be on guard to not become bitter. Because of the continuing presence of sin, there will be relationships that stay estranged because sin will still be in the world until Jesus returns. But what can we do in these cases? How do we keep ourselves from falling into the trap of bitterness? Well, I would say if you are not yet a Christian, come to Jesus and find solace in him. He is described as faithful and true. He will never leave us or forsake us, the Bible says. He will be a true and faithful friend when others are not. And if you have been saved by faith in Jesus, rejoice that God's word is true and that he will continue to provide for you in the midst of the ongoing struggle in the friendship. Lamentations 3 states the following. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Let God's presence be what strengthens you to continue to persevere in showing unconditional love to the other person, even if she chooses to remain estranged. Some of you may be familiar with the hymn, Be Still My Soul. And the first three, this was written, the author of the hymn had terrible death and tragedy in his life. And so the context of the hymn is specific to the bro- a relationship broken by death. But I think its um, wording is also applicable to relationships that are broken by sin. And verse 3 reads the following. It says, Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in a veil of tears. Then shall you better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrow and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus does repay from his own fullness all he takes away. In what ways have you refused to forgive? How have you become bitter? What steps do you need to take to be free from your bitterness? How can God's unfailing presence be an encouragement to you in a relationship that continues to be strained? So let us summarize. We've talked through our four actions of what we are to do, which are strengthen, make straight, pursue, and see to it. There is one thing at the end of our Hebrews 12 passage that we are told not to do. And this is what we will look at as we bring our look at Hebrews to a close. This is on your outline as well. We are to not refuse him who is speaking. And this is in verse 25. In his kindness to us as his creatures, God requires that we follow his word. That we do things his way. And we are plainly told in our Hebrews passage and in multiple other places in the Bible to not refuse his voice, to not ignore his commands or convince ourselves that they must not apply to us. My husband and I have five young children with a sixth due this summer. And as our children have started to grow, we have come to recognize and need to deal with the way that the sin of refusing to obey can take in their lives. Our 13-month-old is in the stage of shaking her head no. The stage of just unashamedly and outright refusing to do what she is told. Our two-and-a-half-year-old do- two daughter is in the, I'm sorry, is someone speaking? 
stage? <laughs> Maybe if I blankly stare at you, I won't be responsible for what you said. In her toddler mind, she thinks pretending that the command was never given means she's not responsible to obey it. Our almost four-year-old son is in the surely this is impossible to do what you have said stage. The stage of using the excuse of it's too hard, I don't like it, can't I go play outside, (laughs) let me do anything else other than what you have said. And then our five-year-old son and our six-year-old son have found themselves in the stage of let me try to convince you by my superior reasoning that there must be a better way stage. The stage of agreeing that perhaps something does need to change, but in their pride, having convinced themselves that their way of handling things is better than what their parents have clearly told them to do. I imagine that you have witnessed some of these stages of sinful rebellion in the lives of children that you interact with, and there's other ways children can rebel and refuse to follow authority that I haven't mentioned that I'm sure you've seen as well. And as adults, we can pride ourselves, can't we, on how much more mature we are than the kids who are still stuck in such stages of rebellion. But have we really grown out of these stages? Are there portions of God's word that we do not like, and so we outright refuse to follow them? Do we deceive ourselves into thinking that if we ignore a certain portion of the Bible, that its application must be irrelevant to us? Do we complain that following God is too hard, no fun, and instead wish we could be doing something else? Or do we convince ourselves that, yes, perhaps God is right, but surely there must be a better way to accomplish his end than what he has clearly laid forth in his word. The exhortation here is to not refuse him who is speaking, to not fall into any of these sinful traps of rebellion that are so easily identifiable in a child, yet if we are honest, are still so present in us as well. We must submit to and trust that God's word is true and to the best of our ability through the strength that he supplies to obey him. To in humility and submission resolve to see true restoration be brought forth in our relationships. I want to close our time by bringing us back to the story I started at the beginning of our time together, of the friendship I had had with Vanessa. And my desire in sharing the rest of the story is that God will encourage you to put into practice some of these principles we've talked about today. Things that we are to do to actively pursue restoring relationships and the things that we are not to do. So during the first few years of my marriage, I still thought of Vanessa often, and God did prompt me at least once a year to pray that he would have us be reconciled. And this was always around our birthdays because our birthdays are a day apart. So every August, she would come to mind, and I would pray and ask God that he might bring some reconciliation to us. August of 2015 was no exception to that, and I remember praying in the days leading up to my birthday, and then as both our birthdays passed, that God would fix our friendship. A few days after our birthdays, I learned that on the night before my birthday, that Vanessa's infant son had died. My initial thought in processing the shock, was that I needed to go to the funeral. After our history of friendship, how could I not go? And yet my subsequent thought was much different. 
How could I ever go to the funeral after how abruptly our friendship had ended? Would she even want me there? And what would things look like if she did not want me present? My emotions were, needless to say, immediately at war within me. Grief for the close friend that I had known, competing with fresh waves of anger over the circumstances that had played out in those final months when we had last spoken. And I knew I had a choice to make. I could look out for my best interests and not attend the funeral. I could let my emotions control me instead of considering what God, through his word, might have me do. Not attending the funeral seemed safe. It would keep me from getting hurt. It would not require me to experience any more pain. She had never reached out to me in the six years that had passed, so why did I need to be the first one? At that point in my life, God had provided other friends, and I had nine healthy fingers, so to speak. Did I really need for there to be unity in every one of my relationships? Or my response could be different. I could go to the funeral not knowing what to expect and not knowing how things would play out in the days that followed. I could model the unconditional love that God, through Christ, has given me and be kind and tender to this woman in her grief, looking to God to provide for me as I obeyed his word. Well, God, in his kindness in that moment, as I was weighing my options, reminded me of my prayers over the years, that I had asked him to reconcile Vanessa and me. I did not know if going to the funeral would actually bring that about, but he was clearly providing a way for me to actively strengthen the relationship, to make straight ways I had wronged her, to pursue her even after all the years of brokenness between us. I needed to decide if I would act in obedience to his word by actively loving Vanessa or if I would refuse him who through these circumstances was so clearly speaking to me. I praise God that he did give me the strength and the courage to attend the funeral and not just to attend but to talk to Vanessa and to hug her and to cry with her. And in the months that followed the funeral, God did reconcile us. It took many conversations and much perseverance on both our parts. It required confession of sin, extending of forgiveness, and forsaking of bitterness. And as God promises in our Hebrews passage, the result of enduring this often difficult process of reconciliation was peace, as we each sought to do what God says is right. What about you? Where is God calling you to be reconciled to another? to act, to strengthen, make straight, pursue, and see to it, to not refuse him who is speaking? Where is he calling you to follow his perfect example in reconciling himself to those who were his enemies? Is there someone you need to call on the way home today? Is there a relationship in which you need to ask for forgiveness? In what ways and in what relationships do you need to forsake bitterness? How have you failed to pursue peace? How have you given up on a faltering friendship? Is there even another woman here today at the conference with whom you are at odds and you want to today make things right with her? May we not refuse the clear teaching of God's word and any application that he's making of it on us today. May we act in faith and resolve to see our broken relationships restored 
And as a result, may God see fit to give us our heart's desire and bring the peaceful fruit of righteousness into our relationships. Well, wasn't that just a great talk? It was full of so much that I think it would be great to actually go back and listen again. Now, if you listened, you're probably like me. You thought of someone you need to restore a relationship with. And I know God is powerful enough to help us walk through and heal broken relationships. I have actually seen him do this in people in my life. I know a mother-in-law who has restored her relationship with her daughter-in-law. I know a mother who has restored her relationship with all of her children. I know husbands who have been welcomed back to their homes by their wives. They've been forgiven of these grievous sins that were against their marriage and their wives restored those relationships with their husband. I've known people who've been hurt by a leader, even a pastor, and they choose forgiveness over bitterness and they choose to restore over running away. Likely you have someone on your mind right now. Hey, I encourage you to put some feet to this thought and start praying today about how to restore this relationship. Ask God to give you wisdom and direction in what to do and then go do something. I think one of the biggest ways we can practice forgiving and restoring relationships is how we speak about that other person. So today I challenge you to both think and speak in ways that are good and honoring and maybe even pray for them. It was great to spend this time with you. Hey, join us next week as we spend some time on our Feminology episodes talking about how a woman is called to be industrious. We're going to chit-chat about all the different seasons of a woman's life and how this looks different and still can have the same foundation. Join us for our 10th episode of Feminology that drops next Thursday. And remember, when everything around you is shaken, you can stand unshaken because of our rock and our fortress, because of God. Until next time.